Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. This morning, we are starting a new sermon series. Brand new sermon series. I am so excited to see what is God going to do through these next seven weeks that we're going to study the letter of Colossians together. Um, The New Testament letter of Colossians was written about 55 AD. It was written by the Apostle Paul, who used to be... uh, Saul, right? He used to be the Pharisee Saul who persecuted the followers of Jesus Christ, a man they claimed was the Messiah. You see, Saul was deadly convinced that he was on the path of pleasing God by hunting down these heretics, by persecuting these followers of this this Messiah. Until one day the risen Christ met Saul on the road to Damascus. He knocked him off his horse. He blinded him and then he opened his eyes. He delivered him from the domain of darkness and transferred him into a new kingdom, a kingdom of his, of the, of his own in which there is redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So Paul, who is Saul, who is now Paul, becomes Jesus' messenger to start new churches all over the Mediterranean. And this was his practice. He would would found a church in a city, and then he would move on to, to another city, and then he would write back to that city where he had founded the church. And that is most of the the epistles, most of the letters in the New Testament, is that Paul writing to these churches he started, Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Thessalonians. Only Colossians is a little bit different. Paul actually didn't start the church in Colossae. One of his fellow workers, his fellow ministers named Epaphras, founded the church in Colossae. Nevertheless, Paul, as an apostle, as one who has been um, sent by God and and, uh, carries the word of God, writes to uh, the um, church in Colossae, because he's concerned for them. He's actually in prison when he's writing this letter and he is concerned that they are being influenced by false teachers who have come to town. These false teachers were telling the Colossians that they needed some special secret knowledge. They needed some some greater, deeper, more experience in order to advance in the Christian life, in order to be real followers of Jesus. They needed something more to which Paul says, brothers and sisters, no, no. You already have everything that you need because you have Christ. You have Christ. He is the center of all reality and he is all sufficient for you. That's that's the message of Colossians in a nutshell. Jesus Christ is the center of everything, and he is all sufficient for you. Michael Reeves says this, he says, we naturally gravitate, it seems, 
toward anything but Jesus. And Christians do this almost as much as anyone, whether it's the Christian worldview, grace, the Bible, or the gospel, as if they were things in themselves that could save us. Even the cross can get abstracted from Jesus, as if the wood had some power of its own. Other things, wonderful things, vital concepts, beautiful discoveries so easily edge Jesus aside. Precious theological concepts meant to describe him and his work get treated as things in their own right. He becomes just another brick in the wall. But the center, the cornerstone, the jewel in the crown of Christianity is not an idea, a system, or a thing. It is not even the gospel as such. It is Jesus Christ. That is why John Calvin said in the the, uh, reflection in your bulletin, he said, there's nothing that Satan loves more than to try to put mists in the view of Jesus, right? I can't say the word very well, mists, right? When the mist rises, and there's nothing that Satan loves more than to to have a mist uh, of our view of Christ because he knows that by this, the means is opened up for every kind of falsehood. Christ at the center Do you see him there? Do you believe him? Do you shape your life around him? That's what the Colossians needed and that's what we need. So let's let's dig in. Let's start together right from the very beginning. If you're willing and able, would you stand? And uh, and I'll begin reading for us from Colossians chapter one, verse one. I'm gonna read the first 14 verses. Hear God's word for you this day. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated, please.
at some point, all of us find ourselves at a fork in the road in our spiritual lives. Suddenly you find yourself staring down two paths, two distinctly different paths. One says, pleasing God. The other says, trusting God. You look at the trusting God sign. You think it sounds good, except it doesn't give me a whole lot to do. It's too passive. It's like, uh, if we're going to do this Christian life, I mean, really do it, then, then we're going to have to have a little bit something more than just trust, right? So you look back at the pleasing God sign. Now, now that makes sense, right? I mean, because after all he's done for us, the least we can do is please him. So this path leads to the room of good intentions. Oh, man, it is an impressive room. My golly, with impressive people, passionate people. You're surprised to see that everyone in this room is wearing masks, but they are immaculate and beautiful, like the masks they hand to you. Everyone here is doing just fine. Everyone's serious about working on their sin and on their disciplines and trying to keep God pleased with them. There's an unspoken message in this room. God loves you always, but he likes you a lot less when you mess up. Still, you join this impressive group of people in this impressive room. And, and really, for the most part, um, you actually uh, are, are coming up to standard on most days. I mean, really, you're, you're, you're doing okay. It's like you remember uh, to read your Bible, you pray for others, and you're even reading a couple of chapters in that book that everybody's raving about. God's, God's uh, glad that you're doing your to-do list. He's not happy about your thoughts, though. He's disappointed that. If you were serious about your sin, you, you, you would fix that. After a while, you, you realize nobody in this room really knows you. They know your mask, but they don't know what you look like behind the mask. They don't know that you're struggling. They don't know that in spite of all your passionate sincerity, you don't believe that you really have pleased God for a minute of your life. You're exhausted bluffing and faking like you have it together. And so one night when nobody's looking, you slip out the back, bone tired and dejected and disillusioned. You walk out onto the path until you hit the fork in the road again. <sighs> Trusting God. Well, if there's no other option, and you find yourself out on the path that leads to the room of grace. <laughs> it's a lot less impressive room, but it is infinitely more inviting. Oh, you are welcomed into this loud conversation, and there are sincere smiles. Oh, my, there's not a match to be seen anywhere. The people in this room, they are messy but honest. They, 
they tell each other the truth about themselves and what they're struggling with and nobody's trying to pretend like they've got it all together. There's, there's a silent message in this room too. It says, God is delighted with you, wild about you, regardless of how you behave. The people in this room actually seem to believe that God loves them and likes them all the time, even when they mess up. After a while in this room, you find yourself slowly starting to tell the truth about yourself and the things you struggle with, and you are shocked to discover that God is right here in the midst of it, his arm tightly around you, loving you, enjoying you. He smiles at you and he says, <laughs> you know, I really am big enough to handle your stuff, all of it. It doesn't surprise me. It doesn't shock me. It never comes between you and me. I am crazy in love with you on your very worst day. Now listen to me. I just want you to trust me with who I say you are. And I want you to learn to let other people love you with all your stuff. It will free you to love like crazy because you will have experienced being loved. let that video sink in. I'll tell you how it connects to our passage in a minute. Paul had, uh, Paul had never met these Colossians, remember, that he was writing to, but he knew something about them. He, uh, he knew something about these people he'd never met. Look again at verses three through six. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. This you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you. Indeed, in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and increasing as it does also among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. What does Paul know about these Colossians that he's never met? He knows that they, they really believe. They're converted They've heard the gospel of grace. They've understood it. They've become Christians. They're on the, the journey in following Jesus. It was real. Like so many of you, I have no doubt in my mind. I just see the fruit. It's evident in you. Paul says, you know what? I see the fruit in you, the fruit, this famous Christian triad of faith, hope, and love. The fruit's there. I see it. You love Jesus. You're following Jesus. But at some point, all of us find ourselves at a fork in the road in our spiritual lives. Like in the video, there are two distinct paths in front of us, two primary motivations of how I will walk this Christian journey. Pleasing God or trusting God. One path leads to the room of good intentions, and the other path leads to the room of grace. And which fork in the road you take 
which path you walk along, which room you find yourself in, determines the way that you read the Bible. It, it actually changes the way that you hear what Paul is saying here in these verses, what Paul says next. It makes all the difference. Look at what he says in verses nine through 12. And so, from the day we heard about you, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. You see, those who are on the path of pleasing God, living in the room of good intentions, when they read these verses, see something there that's not actually there. It's the way that I saw them for so many years. What they see when they read these verses actually looks more like this. It looks like a list, uh, a list of to-dos. Know his will. Be spiritually wise and understanding. Live in a way that makes you worthy of the Lord. Fully please him by bearing fruit in every good work. Increase in the knowledge of God. Be strong. Endure and be patient with joy. Give thanks. When you read that list, how does that make you feel? Gosh, that makes me feel tired. It makes me feel dejected. It makes me feel guilty because I know that I, I don't do that. But for those who've taken the path of trusting God, the path that leads to the room of grace, they interpret those very same verses in a radically different way. In a way that instead of producing frustration and defeat and cynicism, produces more faith and hope and love. So what makes for the difference? What do we mean when we say trusting God? What we mean is trusting God with who he says we are. Trusting God with who he says that I am. You know, if you read these first 14 verses of Colossians carefully, you'll notice two important things. The first thing you'll notice is that in that section of verses 9 through 12 that I just read, there actually isn't one single command. Nowhere in those verses does it say, you must do this, you must do this, you must do this. Actually, when you look at it carefully, what you notice is that the, many of the verbs in that are actually passive. That is, it says that you may be filled that you may be strengthened. Paul, you see, is not telling the Colossians what he wants them to do for God. He is telling them what he prays that God will do for them. Do you hear the difference? It's not telling them what he wants them to do for God. It's what he's praying that God will do for them. That's the first thing you notice. The second thing that you notice when you look at this passage as a whole and carefully is that these verses, 9 through 12, that talk about living worthy of the Lord, pleasing the Lord, bearing good fruit, those verses are actually surrounded by uh, declarations, statements. They're bracketed by statements about who these Colossians are. You see, Paul begins 
this section by reminding the Colossians, this is who you are. And then he says, this is my prayer for you, that God will do this in you. And then he comes back on the backside and reminds them again, this is who you are. See, Colossians 1, 1 through 14 is only good news if you've chosen the path of trusting God. That imagery of two paths, the, the, the video clip that I showed you, um, this language, it comes from a book called The Cure. I highly recommend it to you. I read it with a group of men in the church a couple months ago. Um, and uh, these false teachers in Colossians said, we have the cure for you Christians. Like we know what you need in order to really follow Jesus. But the cure that they were offering was actually a placebo. It didn't work. They were saying the cure that you need is some new technique, some new discipline, some new effort, some new experience. But the real cure is none of that. The real cure is continually going back to the foundational thing that made you a Christian in the first place. Trusting God. Trusting God. This is what the authors write uh, in the book. They say, only by trusting can we truly please God. If our primary motive is pleasing God, we'll never please him enough. Pleasing God is a good desire. It just can't be our primary motivation or it will imprison our hearts. When our primary motive becomes trusting God, however we suddenly discover that there is nothing in the world that pleases him more. Until you trust God, nothing you do will please God. Until you trust God, nothing you do will please him. Paul is saying here that I want you to trust God with who he says you are. In all of those things that I'm praying for you, the fruit and the walking and the all of those things will happen naturally. They will just spring out of you like, a, like a springs that we have here in Crystal River, right? And so what I want to do with the time that we have left is I want to look at those brackets, the reminders that Paul gives to these Colossians and to us about who God says that I am. You know, each one of these could be its own sermon, um, but uh, don't worry, we'll go through them uh, somewhat quickly, okay? Look again, starting at verse two. How does Paul begin? He begins by saying, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. To the saints. I am a saint. I'm a saint. The Greek word there, saints, hagioi, means holy ones, set apart, dedicated to God, saint. We were joking with um, Ray this week. He was getting ready to leave. He was um, actually going to Italy and uh, saying, hey, Ray, listen, you know, um, the Pope is ailing. And, uh, you know, you get there, they might call your number. Uh, you know, that white smoke goes up and you might walk out with that big hat on your head and uh, because, listen, it, if it, they're not going to call your number and they're not going to call my number, right? But Ray's got a chance, right? Ray's one of the good ones. He's like, 
may be a saint. Do you realize that the saints are not an elite group of super-Christians who get their own statues and holidays? You are the saints. You're the holy ones. You're set apart. And you are not sinless. That's not what a saint means. The question is, how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself primarily as a saved sinner or as a saint who still sins? Do you see yourself primarily as a saved sinner or as a saint who still sins? What's the difference between the two? Uh, They write in the book, there is a way of seeing God in the room of good intentions. Millions buy into it. It's that whole vision of Jesus there and you here and your sin a trash heap in between. It's saying that you believe you are a saved sinner who will always be a saved sinner. Nothing's really been changed in you. Maybe you get some fairy dust if you beg hard enough. Maybe the Holy Spirit does something, but you are basically a not very good person who's trying to be very, very good. You're just a sinner who's going to heaven because of something God did, not much more. But that's actually not true. You're not just a sinner. You're not just a saved sinner. You are a saint. You're a saint who still sins, but a saint nonetheless. I'm a saint, and I am faithful. I'm faithful to the saints and faithful brothers. Some people think that Paul, when he's writing here, he's, um, he's calling them faithful brothers because he's trying to make a contrast between the ones who are faithful and the ones who are unfaithful. Like he's, he's calling certain ones of them out and, and saying, um, you know, you who have not succumbed to the false teaching, this is who I'm writing to, but that's not the case. He's not writing to some of the Christians in Colossae. He's writing to all of the Christians in Colossae, to the whole mixed bag of them, and he calls all of them faithful. You are faithful. How can that be the case? How can Paul say that? Do you see yourself as faithful? I mean, if, if we're honest, we don't feel like we've been perfectly faithful to God a single day of our lives, right? How can God look at us and call us faithful? Here's the thing. When you're a Christian, it means that you've been justified that you have the righteousness of Christ. And so when God the Father looks at you, he sees you as he sees his own son, the one who was perfectly faithful every moment of every day of his life. He looks at you, faithful one. Question six of the Heidelberg Catechism asks the question, how are you righteous before God? Are you really are you really faithful? Are you really, how is that possible? And it gives this answer. We've done this before. Let's do it again. Can we read this together out loud? Only by a true faith in Jesus Christ, that is, 
Though my conscience accuse me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and kept none of them, and am still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never had nor committed any sin, and myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept such a benefit with a believing heart. Do you believe that? That when God looks at you, he looks at you and he says, you've never sinned. You have been perfectly obedient your entire life. I'm a saint. I'm faithful. And I am in Christ. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. You are in Christ, which is another way of saying you are united to Christ. Christ lives in you. You live in Christ. The nature of God has been fused with you from the moment you believed. You have right now all the God you are ever going to get. Once you are in Christ, you can never be out of Christ. You are in Christ on your worst day, in the middle of your worst sin, in Christ. This is so powerful. What Dane Ortland writes in his book, Deeper, he says, our Christian growth takes place in the sphere of a wonderful inevitability, even invincibility. I am united to Christ. I can never be disunited from him. The logic of the New Testament letters is that in order for me to get disunited from Christ, Christ himself would have to be de-resurrected. He'd have to get kicked out of heaven for me to get kicked out of him. We are that safe. So consider the darkness that remains in your life, the spiritual lethargy, the habitual sin, the deep-seated resentment, that place in your life where you feel most defeated, Our sins loom large. They seem so insurmountable. But Christ and your union with him loom larger still. As far as sin in your life reaches, Christ and your union with him reach further. As deep as your failure goes, Christ and your union with him go deeper still. As strong as your sin feels, the bond of your oneness with Jesus Christ is stronger still. So live the rest of your life mindful of your union with the Prince of Heaven. Rest in the knowledge that your sins and failures can never kick you out of Christ. Let an ever-deepening awareness of your union with him strengthen your resistance to sin. I am a saint. I'm faithful because I am in Christ and he is in me. Paul begins this first section of his letter reminding us who we are because of the work of Jesus. But then he also ends the section with another flurry of more reminders of who we are. Look again, starting at verse 12. He says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. I am qualified. Qualified. Qualified? Really? Have you ever been told that you're unqualified for something. Maybe you 
applied for college and they said, no, you're not qualified. Maybe you uh, went for that job interview and they said, you're unqualified for this job. Um, a lot of you feel unqualified for parenting. I'm with you on that, right? Um, it really hurts to feel unqualified. It hurts even deeper to feel disqualified. Some of you know that feeling you felt disqualified to be a follower of Jesus because of some sin in your past. You feel disqualified to be a member of this church. If they really knew what I've done and who I am, you feel disqualified to speak to other people about him. The inadequacy and the shame that come from feeling unqualified and disqualified and God looks at you in Christ and he says, you're qualified. I've qualified you to share in this inheritance, to receive all the benefits of salvation, not just in this life, but most importantly in the life to come. I've qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, what verse five calls the hope laid up for you in heaven, this eternal inheritance. How do you become qualified for an inheritance? Well, you become qualified for an inheritance when you become adopted. Adopted into a family and made an heir. Maybe you've gotten those uh, phone calls, you know, you don't recognize the number, and you pick up and, and the person on the other line says, you are not gonna believe this. There is this Nigerian prince, and he passed away. But on his last dying breath, he bequeathed all of his riches to you. He made you his heir. And I've been tracking you down for like years, trying to find you. And, and all of this is yours. It can be yours if you just give me your social security number and your bank account. It's a scam. not a scam. It's not a scam. And it's so much more beautiful than all the riches that this earth can provide. You've been adopted into his family. You've been made an heir. First Peter 3 says, or First Peter 1 verse 3 says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and is kept in heaven waiting for you. I'm qualified, and then he goes on to say, verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I am delivered. Paul probably has in mind in these verses the Exodus, right? How the people of God were, were delivered from Egypt. They were delivered from powers and authorities who were too strong for them. There was no way that they could deliver themselves, no way that they could rescue themselves in the same way you have been delivered from powers and authorities too strong for you. You've been rescued 
You've been brought out of Egypt and into the promised land. And you've been transferred, right? You have a new address. You're no longer in Egypt. You no longer belong to the domain of darkness, of sin and Satan. You have new spiritual coordinates. And those spiritual coordinates are more real and more important than your physical coordinates. You've been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. I am redeemed. I've been bought back from the bondage of sin into a relationship with God through grace by the payment of Jesus' death. You've been redeemed and I am forgiven. You know, we have this experience as followers of God that um, we came to know Jesus and he forgave us our sins in the past. And then we started going down the, the journey with him. And every time we sin, it's like this, this pile of sin now starts accumulating in front of me. And every day it grows. And it gets bigger and bigger. And then one day I look and on the other side of this pile is Jesus. And I'm here and he's over there. And, and I start thinking, Jesus, we're going to be close again one day. I promise. I'm going to get this pile cleaned up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work really hard and... and and then, and then we can be together, you know? And I used to think that way when I would come for communion. I was telling the folks on Monday Thursday this at my table that I used to see communion as like I get this chance to, like every time I come, promise God how much I was gonna do better this time. How like next time, God, I promise I, I won't need you as much. I'll be worthy. I'll, I'll be good enough for this. And then at some point, I finally realized I'm never going to be better. I'm never going to be worthy. That's the point. That's why Jesus came. That's why he shed his blood. That's why he gave up his body on the cross, because he's not waiting for me to clean up my sin so that he can be close to me. He's already close to me. He is with me all the time. That's how powerful his shed blood is. That he looks at me and he says to me, nothing you can do can make me love you more. And nothing you can do can make me love you less. I'm forgiven. The Judaizers told the Apostle Paul, you can't tell believers that God loves them no matter what. You can't tell them that, that uh, they are in Christ on their worst day. They will take grace and they will abuse it. They will do whatever they want. There's a story told about Abraham Lincoln. Who knows if it's true or not, but it's a great story. Abraham Lincoln was going one day uh, and came to a slave market and uh, saw a woman there on the auction, and he decided that he was going to buy her. And so he bid on her, and he bid on her, and he bid on her until he won her. And as she was watching this take place, she just thought, here's another white owner who's going to abuse me. And when he had purchased her, she came to him and he said, you are free. <laughs> she was like, yeah, yeah, free, what does that mean? He said, you're free. She said, yeah, 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 
uh, free to say whatever I want. He said, you are free to say whatever you want. Yeah, yeah, free to, free to um, you know, uh, believe whatever and, and, and free to, to do whatever. He said, you are free. She began to hesitate and she said, so am I free to go wherever I want to go? He said, you are completely free. You can go wherever you want to go. And with tears in her eyes, she looked at him and said, well, then I want to go with you. Don't tell them that they're in Christ. Don't tell them that they're saints. Don't tell them that they're loved on their worst day because they might want to abuse it. No, they won't. They'll want to go wherever he goes. You see, if you took a caterpillar into a biologist and uh, asked the biologist to examine it, that biologist would look at that caterpillar and they would run all these tests and they would say, Brandon, I, I know this looks like a caterpillar to you, but I'm telling you, based off of every test and all of the DNA, this thing is a butterfly. It has everything inside of it that makes it a butterfly. Isn't that amazing? That God has put into a caterpillar the, the identity of a butterfly. And even though it doesn't look like a butterfly, one day it will exhibit the attributes and the actions and the activities of a butterfly. So it is with us. We have the DNA of God. We have Christ's righteousness. You are a saint. That's who you are. And one day you will exhibit that. The whole point of the sermon, the whole point of this passage is to remind you who you are because of Jesus. Trust the new life that is inside of you. Let it be wooed out. We're so used to being told, you ought to do this, you should do this, why can't you do it, when will you do it? I'm telling you, you can do it. You get to do it, because that's who you are. Everything you need to do this spiritual life with God is already inside of you, waiting to be accessed. All the DNA is there. The goal is not to change. You have already been changed. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The goal is to mature into who you, who you already are. So this morning I am daring you to trust who God says you are. May I believe God when he says to me, I am delighted with you, wild about you, regardless of how you behave. I love you and like you all the time, even when you mess up. I really am big enough to handle your sin, all of it. It doesn't surprise me, it doesn't shock me, it never comes between you and me. I am crazy in love with you on your very worst day. I just want you to trust me. Let's pray.
Father, the same prayer that Paul prayed for the Colossians is what I pray for my brothers and sisters here at Seven Rivers. I pray that you would fill them with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding to grasp who they are in Christ. I pray that you would, that, that, that they would believe, truly believe that you have qualified them, you have made them worthy. They are already, right now, fully pleasing to you. And that out of that security would come Holy Spirit fruit in every good work. Please strengthen them with your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Fill their hearts with daily gratitude for all that you have done for them. Increasing gratitude for who you say that they are. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.